Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today is the Executive Director of the United States Fund for UNICEF, Carol Stern. We have a great conversation about UNICEF and about the interesting life and career path that led the daughter of a Holocaust escapee to the helm of the U.S. fundraising arm for UNICEF. So the way UNICEF funding works is quite interesting, and we get into it at the top of the interview. But just for some background, what we know of as UNICEF is obviously the large UN organization supporting the needs of children around the world. It's funded mostly through the voluntary contributions of member states. That is, donor countries like the USA include a line item in their budget for their national contributions to UNICEF. But that doesn't cover all the costs. So UNICEF is a pretty sophisticated operation for raising funds from the private sector and individuals like you and me. These are called the national committees, and their ability to raise funds and provide other support for UNICEF operations is absolutely critical to UNICEF's overall mission worldwide. So that's the background, Uh, and we get into that at the top of the interview. We then discuss Carol Stern's background, how her family history has had a profound impact on her career trajectory. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I post one of these longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries like Ms. Carol Stern every Monday and every Thursday. I post shorter conversations with journalists or think tank types about something in the news. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and subscribe for free on iTunes, get the app, and search our robust archive. So here it is, my conversation with Carol Stern, Executive Director of the U.S. Fund for UNICEF. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, last year was a real banner year in terms of fundraising. Unfortunately, overwhelmingly due to it was a banner year for disasters. You know, we had more high-level disasters than any year in my career anyway. And last year, between in-kind gifts and cash, so it's a combination thereof, we raised, I believe the number was $670 million last year. Um, and so you attribute though that to, to disasters, like I presume like the typhoon Haiyan um, in the Philippines was probably the big one for you? Typhoon Haiyan, but also um, what was going on in Syria. Well, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis, the Ebola crisis, Um, You know, you had simultaneous level three emergencies happening, and usually at any given moment, there may be one or two level three emergencies, and last year we had five simultaneous. Right, between like the South Sudan, the Central African Republic, the Typhoon, Syria, Iraq, Uh, it was was a a banner year for disasters. But I guess I'm I'm surprised that Syria is still, um, I guess... Uh, inspiring donors at this point. I mean, there seems to be kind of like a, I, I would, I would have expected there to be like a burnout among donors. 
You know, um, with every disaster, you see an ebb and flow of interest and, and kind of burnout, you know, donor fatigue, as we politely will call it. But I believe one of the reasons the Syrian refugee crisis in particular is a unique one is overwhelmingly the refugees in the Syrian refugee crisis are, um, you know, upper, lower class, middle class individuals. They're professionals. They're working people. They're people whose lives mimic the average American's life and who now suddenly find themselves in refugee camps. And so while I think the over the overwhelming, you know, the override story, if you will, may be something the American people have heard time and time again, I think when they hear about the individual families, it resonates with the American people. Um, and so, I guess, who are your donors, um, and, and where do they come from? Who are our donors? Our donors are, are kind of a real microcosm, if you will, of the American people. You know, we have large corporate donors. We have significant individual major gifts donors. But we also have quite a huge number of the $10 annual contributor. Um, and we also have the pledge donor who contributes that on a monthly basis. But when the economy tanked, I was really heartened by the fact that it was those $10 donors who sustained us when the economy was in a bad, you know, bad condition and people were really rethinking their philanthropy. I had an overwhelming number of letters actually written to me personally from individuals I didn't know saying, you know, we are not eating beef at our table anymore because it's just become too expensive, but we are not going to let the children of the world down. Here's our $10. Um, and I, I guess even as probably the major donors were unable to sustain their major gifts. So like, what do you have an idea of like what percentage of your overall donor base are those like you know, micro donors? You know, I don't know the actual percentage. I do know that we have, I believe at the moment, 19 people who are individuals who have given a million dollars or more. So that gives you a sense of the percentage at the very top, you know, mm -hmm. when you think about $670 million. Um, it, it is, I don't know the number of, of low you know, below $25 annual donors, but I do know it's large. We have over 600,000 donors in total annually. Um, so I don't, uh, I should have researched this before I talked to you, but I don't have UNICEF, like uh, UN UNICEF's actual um, annual expenditures on the top of my mind, but I have to imagine that $670 million is probably what, like 15% of their total budget, 20% maybe? Well, the annual budget for UNICEF International is about $3 billion a okay. year. Okay. So, you know, it's, we're about a little over a sixth of that. Last year, for the first time, private sector funding was, was equivalent to or just slightly more than 50% of the funding for UNICEF International. Huh. So of that $3 billion, $1.5 billion of it came from, let's say, you know, roughly from the private sector, and $670 million of that $1.5 billion came from the American people. So I guess... Um... In a way, that's a little, I mean, that, that's great. That's like a great achievement for, for UNICEF, for the national UNICEF funds. But when you look at it like structurally, it seems problematic in a way that so much of UNICEF's work depends on like the generosity of people as opposed to um, like just fiduciary commitments from member states. Yeah, but I think it's one of the things that makes UNICEF really unique we have all of the assets of being a United Nations agency. 
We work as part of country plans. We work in tandem with all the other UN agencies. But not being a part of the member state budget, it does allow UNICEF to really truly have no politics. You know, UNICEF is on all sides and no sides. The only side we are strategically on is the side of a child. And we're not embroiled in the politics that may or may not take place at any table that's connected to the work that we do. Um, well, but that, that's not terribly dissimilar to like the World Food Program either, right? Right. You know, there are other UN agencies in similar circumstances, but clearly member states contribute to UNICEF, but they contribute directly. It's not through their dues to the United Nations. And unfortunately, I mean, here's where I would agree and disagree with, you know, kind of where you started. Unfortunately, those those contributions have declined. I mean, while private sector funding has increased, member state contribution has declined. That's reflective, obviously, of the economy of many of the member states at the moment. And one would hope and wish that when it comes to children, that number would never decline. And I can speak for my own country as well, you know, that we lobby quite heavily to ensure that the United States contribution at minimum remains status quo to what it was. And obviously we hope and desire that it will go up. And so in the best of all possible worlds, that would be the same for every member state country. But it's very difficult you know, take a country like Japan, which is a significant contributor to the United States, Japan experiences its disaster, clearly their contribution is going to go down. Mm -hmm. um, can can I ask you a bit about the role of celebrity in, in fundraising? Because that's something um, like the whole like Goodwill Ambassador program is something that UNICEF really pioneered early on. Um, how important is that to you? Uh, is that to your fundraising efforts overall? Yeah, we were the first ones to ever use celebrities for good, so to speak, um, you know, with Danny Kaye and Audrey mm -hmm. Hepburn, and others obviously have followed suit all over the place. <laughs> and it, I think it is important. It's not exclusively important, but important. Clearly, celebrities have the power of a podium. They have the ability to amplify a message, and especially in today's, you know, technological age where they have Facebook followers that will read their page and therefore see a message about what the world's children may be experiencing when they may not see it in other places. So it's a great amplification of our message. They also often serve as role models, and in particular, the UNICEF ambassadors. It is so difficult to become a UNICEF ambassador. So what kind of hoops do uh, the ambassadors have jumped through? Like, like, can you walk, maybe walk me through, like, sure. you know, and from start to finish? Sure, and we down a lot of people. I can imagine. We do. We do. Um, first of all, for the U.S. Fund ambassador, and there are some that are international goodwill ambassadors, and those are housed at the U.N., and then each of the national committees of, the, of UNICEF, we have our own unique ambassadors. So for the U.S. Fund ambassadors, the ones over which I have control, um, we will date you for a year before we marry you, which mm -hmm. means first you come to us and you express interest or we go to you because we're interested in you. And that can happen either way, although more often than not, they're coming to us. And we will look at the person's record and image. Does this person's record and image align with the kind of a voice you want, both speaking to and on behalf of the world's children? So that would be the first cut. And let's assume now we've, we've reached the point where we're in mutual agreement that this is the kind of person we'd feel really good about. The next thing we're going to do is spend time with that person and see 
is the commitment real? Are they willing to do the homework to be a voice of children to really learn the facts on the ground? Are they honestly passionate about our agenda? Because we have a great reputation, because so many come to us, we are very blessed to be in the situation where we really only have to take the ones for whom it's real. Mm-hmm. The third thing we will do is take them to the field. Let them see firsthand the work of UNICEF and and work with them on their ability to articulate what they've seen. Can they digest it? Can they understand it? Will they be participative? Do they speak kid? Are they on the ground Are they uh, with kids on them, or is it really more of an intellectual experience? And because I want this person to engage and um, entice the American people, you want an emotional response where they've had a firsthand personal experience. So the do they speak kid is a pretty big criteria. Hmm. The third is are they willing to give of their time? It's wonderful to have a list of names, but the names are not enough. They really do need to be willing to bring to bear some of their assets. Will they tweet for us? Will they put it on their Facebook page? Will they speak at an appropriate event? Will they go to a school? Will they be part of a campaign that we're doing? So the time commitment would probably be the next criteria. And then lastly, are they easy to work with? You know, are they accessible? Do they really want to talk to us? Um, So have you ever had to excommunicate anyone? We've never excommunicated anyone. Um, You know, but obviously there are peaks and flows in person's availability. So there are times where people have um, gone into, you know, almost a retirement phase, if you will. And then they'll circle back when time allows again. Um, are like, can you, is there like a, any particular, um, you know, celebrity that you would name that like their input into, you know, investing time with UNICEF USA yielded some tangible outcomes, some like, you know, either fundraising or anything else? There's a, there are quite a few, some of whom who are ambassadors and some of whom are just people who have been spokespeople for us, but probably the most engaged ambassador we have is Taya Leone. Mm -hmm. Taya, who's on um, your board, right? Right, she's on the board. Yeah. Her grandmother founded the U.S. Fund for UNICEF. So this is not, hey, I'm an actress and I want to find a cause. This is something she grew up with. It's in the DNA of Taya to be a UNICEF advocate and a child advocate. So she's amazing. I mean, just amazing. I have traveled all over the world with her. She has done public service announcements for us. She has done part of our DRTV campaign. She has done advertisements. She has spoken at events. She has gone on solicitations. I mean, she's as good as it gets. Second would be someone like Lucy Liu, who also, it is so real, and she's gotten very involved in the issue of trafficking and is in that result helped to produce a film, helped to promote the production of that film, traveled with it, you know, etc., and has brought to the table a number of supporters. On a smaller scale, you know, something where it's a unique individual who's not an ambassador, but it shows you the power of a bold-faced name. When the Haiti earthquake happened, a lot of celebrities came out and did a lot of really wonderful things for us. But um, Sammy D'Alembert, who was on the 76ers at the time, made a personal gift on the court at halftime on a televised game, and it got picked up by ESPN because of who he is. And it was put on the ESPN homepage that day, you know, the front page of their homepage. And as a net result, we saw an incredible spike in online donations that night off of people who saw Sammy doing it and wanted to follow suit. Hmm. Hmm. 
So it, it's a very tangible uh, result, and, and you know it, it helps your bottom line in, in pretty pretty real ways, I suppose. Absolutely, it does. I mean, I you know again, I could go on and on with what individuals you know. Um, Alyssa Milano, who is the face of our DRTV campaign, endless hours in studio, taping messages, and she's just resonates with the American public. Um, so I wanted to maybe uh, switch gears a little bit and, and um, learn a little bit more about you. I've been following your work for a while. I've obviously you know, been following the work of UNICEF you know, professionally for, for a long time. So I'm curious to know how you got into this line of work and, and where you're from and you know, how you, know, you became the, the head of the largest national UNICEF fund. Um, so maybe we can uh, turn back the clock a little bit. Just you know, We'll start with the basic questions. Where were you born? Um, you know, what was your family into at the time? Sure. Um, I was born in Mount Kisco, New York, and ah, I was the not too far from where child. I was born. <laughs> really? Danbury, <laughs> Danbury, New York, Danbury, oh, Connecticut. Danbury, okay. Yeah. So not I grew too up far. in Peekskill. Okay. And um, my mom survived the Holocaust because her parents sent her to this country with her brother alone, with a with a family friend, but without the family. Um, where and, they were placed in an orphanage here in New York City and raised by Christian nuns for a number of years. Oh my gosh. So were, 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 your, were her parents killed? Were your grandparents killed in the Holocaust? Many of our relatives perished at the hands of the Nazis. My immediate grandparents both um, survived, but my grandfather was on the boat, the SS St. Louis, that wasn't allowed to dock anywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, he ultimately survived the war in a, uh, the equivalent of a POW camp, an internment camp in... Um, England, and then came over. My the, grandmother the SS, survived the war. The, the St. Louis. Now, uh, that is the the um, ship that nearly docked in Miami, right? Yes, it was bound for Cuba. And when they got to Cuba, they learned that all the documents they had purchased were fraudulent. And Cuba wouldn't let them in. And it did sit in the harbor for 40 days while the world debated its fate. And nobody would take them. So they ultimately were sent back, where most perished at the hands of the Nazis. What happened to, to what happened to your grandfather then? A very small number were let off the boat in London. The rest were let off in, in most in um, Holland, which was neutral at the time. But shortly thereafter, the Nazis took Holland and they were perished. But my grandfather was let off the boat in England where he was not noted as a Jew, but noted as um, an Austrian. <laughs> and Austria was on the other side of the war. So they were put in an internment camp because they were Austrians. I guess but I suppose like, life. A, yeah, an internment camp in the UK for a Jew is probably not the, the worst place to have exactly. escaped the war. Wow. So he survived the war. My grandmother survived the war in hiding in Austria. Oh, geez. That's, uh, and, and so uh, how much did your, your, your mom at least like, you know, talk to you about, about this growing up, like, and about her experience? She, um, she she said you know she actually talked about it quite a bit she um really felt that she was very very lucky to have survived the holocaust that she understood that there are those that looked at the Holocaust and said, why did this happen to us? And there were others that looked at the Holocaust and say, there must be a reason I survived. She falls into there must be a reason I survived. And so she really felt strongly her survival propelled her to be engaged and involved in making the world a better place. So 
there's no surprise in the family that my brother and I ended up in helping professions because my mom had us, you know, we marched on everything. Uh, we were part of the anti-war movement. We were part of the civil rights movement. We were part of the women's rights movement. I mean, she had us out there. You know, we carried signs. And um, she really instilled in us, if you weren't part of the solution, you were part of the problem. And my grandfather's story, because I knew my grandfather, he did survive in the camp in London and come to this country, resonated with all of us that what happens when the world turns its back? People die. So my mother taught us one person can make a difference. The woman who brought her and her brother to safety here in the United States was that one person for her. And my religious upbringing taught us, you know, if you save one person, you save the world. And clearly I feel that way. One woman saved my mom. I exist because of her. And then I also, my mother also taught us that we don't have to all be the same to care about the same things. Christian nuns raised my mom and enabled her to continue to be a Jew. How old was your mom when, when she came over? She was six years old. Oh, wow. So, and, and the, the Christian nuns just, you know, supported her Jewish education, I suppose? Absolutely. Huh. And cared for her. She said she felt loved in the um, home. It was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. She mm -hmm. said that um, she had long blonde hair and, you know, blue eyes. She looked very Austrian. And that most of the girls in the home were, you know, orphans for other reasons. And they made them cut their hair because it was obviously much easier to care for kids in an orphanage with short hair. And they somehow understood that my mother had just lost so much and they let her keep her braids. Um, so growing up in, in that, uh, I guess, politically active household, um, mm -hmm. I, I guess I imagine like the conversations around the, like the dinner table were, were pretty rich and, and political at the time. Um, what, I guess, how did you um, eventually like channel that en energy, channel that activism when you became uh, a, a bit older? Well, I was always a volunteer. So then I went away to college and I was encouraged to learn, not to learn for a career, but to learn to satisfy my soul. And so I got a bachelor's degree in studio art and kind of then realized I needed to do something though to make a living, ended up going back to graduate school and got my master's and ultimately studied for my doctorate in higher education administration and counseling for college age individuals and went to work in higher ed. I worked at Northwestern. I worked at DePaul. I ultimately found myself as dean of students at Polytechnic University in Brooklyn. And it was a time when race relations in Brooklyn were stressful. And I was asked by the borough president, primarily because of my title, I think, at the university, to serve on a task force for race relations for the city of New York and for the mm -hmm. borough of Brooklyn. And right around the time that we began to have some really successful interfaith, intergroup programming going on in Brooklyn, the Anti-Defamation League was looking for someone to lead a huge anti-bias initiative they were doing with CBS television here in New York. And mm -hmm. they offered me an opportunity to take the job to run the project. So I gave up being dean to go do what I thought was a one-year job. But it turned into two years in New York, and then I was offered the opportunity to replicate it across the country. So I said I'd stay for a couple more years, and I worked with uh, – got 30 television affiliates around the country and produced about 60 hours of original on-air programming that was themed around diversity and inclusion and created a curriculum for K through 12 that 
surrounded that television programs. And then so we took can I, all can of I that. Can I ask you about yeah. that, the, the, the sort of New York teaching experience real, real quick and, and the race relations issue? Um, so this is, uh, you know, I think a, a, a bit before my time, but I, I suppose in like the 70s and 80s, there was this kind of riff in New York City, right, between African-American uh, families of, of school kids and like sort of white Jewish teachers. Am I imagining mm-hmm. that? Or, or, or I seem to remember there, there was. was this like undercurrent I... where you had like, you know, a lot of like white Jewish women teaching in public schools, uh, African-American children, and that sort of provided some sort of level of, of angst? You know, again, not being a teacher in the New York City schools, I'm less mm-hmm. aware of what the specifics were, but I think some of it was just based on changing demographics in the boroughs. You know, what had been overwhelmingly Jewish neighborhoods were changing, and there were African Americans moving into the neighborhoods. Some of the practices of both communities offended the practices of the other community. <laughs> um, and, and all of that heated up then, you know, and, and at this time I was already at the Anti-Defamation League, but when the Crown Heights riots happened, mm-hmm. and it really polarized the communities against each other. And so there was a lot of healing to do, and I stayed at ADL to be part of that. And ultimately, the project I was running today, there were 450,000-plus teachers in the project, and about 20 million kids have been impacted by it. It's in all 50 states. It's in eight EU countries. It's in the former Soviet, the Middle East, Japan, Latin so America. So what, what is this world. curriculum exactly? Can you maybe dive a little deeper? Sure. It is a curriculum that is based on teaching kids critical thinking skills, teaching kids to value diversity, um, it's based on the theory of if you can learn that, that no child is born a bigot, but that we are taught to hate. If we can taught to hate, we can unlearn it or we can prevent that learning from happening to begin with. So starting at a very early age, it teaches children the value of diversity. At a more middle school age, it starts to really deal more with an anti-bullying curriculum. It deals more with what is bigotry, some of the terminology, et cetera. But it's an integrated curriculum so that it's not just a class unto itself. It's adaptable to music, art, history, physical education, math. Even there's some great math lessons that talk about the diversity of math and the history of math and where it comes from. And the curriculum is not sold. A teacher can only access it if he or she goes through a training program Mm -hmm. where they first are forced to look at their own biases. What are the eyes I bring to the classroom? How does that play out in my classroom? And then they're taught how to use these specially designed materials. So they very much come alive because teachers actually get hands-on use of them before they are handed them. Um, And then the way the program supports itself is there was a corporate training program and a campus training program and a community training program and and a law enforcement training program. There was all kinds of additional programs that were not Mm -hmm. free, that were paid for, that supported the teacher training and the materials for kids so it grew and it grew and it grew i had the privilege to um help design the program that was used by the fbi as well as the cia i helped to design some anti-bias training for military i mean it was really a quite an exciting so, number I mean, of years i mean this sounds like the, like the, the sort of the adl's bread and butter right i mean this is the stuff that the, the adl you know rightfully earned a you know, excellent reputation for confronting bias. But I think mm-hmm. among people of my generation, particularly like Jews of my generation, have sort of soured on the Anti-Defamation League over the last, say, 10 years or so, um, because it seems to have drifted from that mission. 
uh, and sort of conflated anti-Semitism with support for Israel, and also this this kind of very you know rough situation around the Park 51 mosque. If, I don't know if you remember that, yeah, where you. the ADL surprisingly and shockingly came out like against having a you know Islamic center near Ground Zero for you know reasons that are are beyond my comprehension. Do you, I mean, I guess you're, you're out of ADL now and you have an official sort of position with UNICEF, but do you know, like, like what happened? Like, like how yeah, really did the ADL drift? That, that whole situation, you know, I've been here at UNICEF now for eight, over eight years, so I unfortunately was not at ADL for most of the period that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Hard for me to really, and I don't speak for them, so I would be right. hard-pressed to really give you something on that. But I can tell you from my understanding as an observer and an outsider, so truly not an official, just an opinion. Mm-hmm. In the mosque situation, I think what ADL's position was was truly under, misunderstood. They were not condemning putting a center there. They were asking, could not the community find a place that would not feel offensive to some? And so, you know, I think the call, as I understood, that Abe Foxman was looking for and ultimately put out the leaf to help with was to find an alternative space. He wasn't opposed to an Islamic studies center in and of itself, but felt that by putting it right on that block, it was problematic. And again, that's I I, but I can't I am neither defending nor attacking his opinion because I've not had an extended conversation Mm -hmm. with him. And and it's not my yeah. job to have an opinion on any of that. No, no, I I, I understand. It just seems like you know, the ADL seems to have drifted, and that seems to have been like a moment where it crystallized among a lot of Jews of my generation, at least. Anyway, um, we can uh, we can move on. So, how actually how long were you at, at the ADL for? Eighteen years. I was ultimately the chief operating officer there mm-hmm. under Abe, and so based and the associate national director of the organization. And about a little over eight years ago, for a variety of reasons, decided it might be time for me to do something else. All of my rating research and and involvement has always centered around children. So when UNICEF called me, it seemed like an amazing opportunity to come and be the chief operating officer here, not to be the boss, but to be number two here. And I wasn't sure if I really wanted to make a lateral move. You know, I thought, you know, look, I've been running you know, and working for one of the larger nonprofits, I think I'm ready to run, but this was UNICEF, you know? (laughs) I mean, this is the ultimate children's organization, and what a privilege would it be to work here? And in my interview, I asked the then CEO, Chip Lyons, why should I take this job? You know, why should I make a lateral move? And he said to me, because, you know, once you know what you're doing, I'm going to take you to Africa. I'm going to put a baby in your arms. I'm going to teach you how to give an immunization. Maybe it'll be drops. Maybe it'll be an injection, whatever it will be. And you will immunize a child. And if you don't do anything else for the rest of your life, you're going to know you saved a life. You made life possible. He goes, how could you turn down this job? And I thought to myself, he's right. How could you turn down that job? So I made the lateral move. And about three weeks after I got here, Bill Gates offered Chip Lyons a job. And he mm. took it, and okay. here I was, brand new job, lateral move, come work for this amazing man, Chip Lyons, and now he's leaving, and I was in complete panic. Uh, you know, I'd given up real job security, and I now didn't know who my boss would be and didn't know much about, you know, developing countries and aid, knew a lot about running nonprofits and obviously a lot about children. And the board 
really made me the acting CEO because I was here, not because they thought I was the right candidate for the job. And they said I could apply, but that they weren't too optimistic. And I luckily, in the time it took them to do an international search, which was a little over six months, um, had the privilege to do a lot of travel, spent a lot of time in country and see the work and really just put myself through what I can, a university UNICEF and spent a real lot of time studying and was very, very lucky that they gave me the job. Had you been to the developing world or sub-Saharan Africa in, in particular before you took the job at UNICEF? Nope. Um, so what was, um, so I mean, I find it fascinating that you have this, you know, vast experience in, in the nonprofit world, but no experience in international development. What sort of preconceived notions about development did you have before you took the job that were soon like washed away or, or, or soon you realized were, were incorrect somehow? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think I had actually, you know, now that I reflect, I think I had a pretty accurate perception because I had done a lot of travel for ADL. So it wasn't that I was unaware of what the issues were, but I had not been in Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Um, the first trip that I went on for UNICEF, I had no sense of what I was getting myself into, if you will. And where was that quickly, trip? The first trip I took was to Mozambique. And you know, experienced the opportunity of traveling with um, with someone who was a doctor. We were off-road most of the time. We were visiting villages that, you know, for which you couldn't have found them unless you really knew what you were doing. And um, spent a lot of time with women who, would give, who were giving birth at home, got an opportunity to kind of compare lifestyles and really begin to understand the work that we do. And was struck by what I didn't know. Not in terms of, of atmospherics, but in terms of really what a woman has to go through in a, in a place very different than where I live. And really quickly you know, started to drink the Kool-Aid, if you will, of pride in what UNICEF is able to do and accomplish. And in one of the trips, I'm trying, you know, my second trip was to Darfur, so I really, you know, threw myself in there, <laughs> you know, um, and spent time in the refugee camps and, and, and a lot of time with women and men hearing the stories of where they had come from. And then my third trip, I went to kind of ground zero for um, under five child mortality. I went to Sierra Leone. And while in Sierra Leone, I was there on a tetanus campaign and bore witness to a baby dying of tetanus, a six-day-old baby. And I sat in this, you know, community hospital with a 19-year-old mom who spoke no English. I did not speak her language. And all we could do was sit in this corner and hold hands because we were moms and watch her child struggle. And the pain of holding her hand as her baby died just lit a fire for me. You know, that this is just not okay, that I was going to get back on a plane and come home to my own kids who had they, who never would have contracted tetanus to begin with, but had they contracted tetanus, would have gone to a hospital, would have been cured, you know, would have been vaccinated against it, though. And, and here was this 19-year-old mom, and oh, it was, it was a horrific day with her and realizing she was just one of, at that time, the 26,000 children who died that day of causes that could be prevented. And I came back and I don't think I've been the same person since. When was that? 
that was, let's see, I've been here eight years. I think it was 2008. And so how often, uh, you know, do you as, as the, the head of the organization still go out to the field? As often as I can. Um, I'm probably in country four or five times a year. But again, some of that is dictated by what's going on in the world, you know, when there's an emergency, you know, Haiti, for example, because it was right here and easy to go to. And because I went uh, actually just a couple of weeks after the earthquake, I flew in on the first commercial flight allowed in, actually, and I got very caught up in what was going on in Haiti. So I was there quite frequently. <laughs> um, and I've now similarly with having spent time in Jordan last year in the refugee camps there and and trying to get back to Jordan this year. And, and politics may make that a little more difficult travel right now than it was then. But um, it's dictated a little bit by that, a little bit by just kind of learning and, and issues that are near and dear to me. I had worked on issues of children with disabilities in the past. So one of my early trips was to Vietnam as Vietnam was emerging as a middle-income country and starting to look at um, how America has mainstreamed children with disabilities, what laws needed to be changed there, how children with disabilities were treated in their country. So I was very privileged that the Ford Foundation enabled me to be part of a huge project there. So I was going back and forth to Vietnam quite frequently for a while. Um, but I really feel that more than 50% of my job is to be the voice of children whose voices will never get heard here. So in order to be their voice, I have to hear their voice. And so I spend you know, as much time as I can hearing that voice, writing about it, speaking about it. You know, the book that I published, uh, I Believe in Zero, is really their stories. And um, just uh, trying to capitalize on the privilege I have in this job. Um, I guess it seems like the, the you know, your role, though, at least from, from the outside, to me, it seems like you're, you know, you're the fundraiser, right? Like that's probably your, like UNICEF, like UNICEF, the UN UNICEF probably views you and, and your counterparts in the other national committees as um, not really like the, the voice of UNICEF or the voice of children, but as like the, the people who can enable them to do their job to, to maximum effect, right? I'm wondering if there's yeah, any like tension there. Now, we're not the voice of UNICEF. UNICEF International is its own voice. We're all really clear on that. You know, it's not mm -hmm. Tony Lake speaks for UNICEF. I don't. I am the voice of children that UNICEF serves in the United States. So, and UNICEF sees the national committees. At one time, I think we were just the fundraisers, if you will, but we are now the advocates for UNICEF's agenda. I spend more of my time on the advocacy side than I do on the fundraising side. You know, yes, we have a huge financial um, responsibility, but it isn't going to take just dollars to change the state of the world's children. You know, and I would, you know, since we were talking race relations, we enacted um, civil rights laws in this country. You know, Johnson came out. I was just watching the movie Selma the other night, actually. Um, you know, we put laws in place, but life doesn't only change because there's a law in place. Life changes because people's hearts and minds are won over. 
And that is a huge part of what the national committee structure is for UNICEF. UNICEF is working in country, and UNICEF is doing Mm -hmm. the work it needs to do to save lives and doing it, I believe, better than any organization on the globe. Do you have – this is maybe a a little uh, wonky, but do do you have a C4 arm or are you just a a 501c3? Like, Are you advocating – are you able to advocate on behalf of legislation pending in Congress? Uh, no, we're a C3. We're not a C4. Okay. But we definitely walk the halls. Um, I am less engaged and involved in legislation domestically, although we have been known to take positions when it is, you know, completely child-centric, you know, domestic policy. But we are clearly walking the halls on behalf of children in the developing world and ensuring that the allocation of the U.S. government remains. And the only way that's going to happen is for our legislators to be constantly bombarded with the information and to be challenged to put children first. As a matter of fact, in our strategic plan, the Winning Hearts and Minds is a huge section that it gets evaluated. And one of our measurements was, isn't it odd that our legislators debate foreign policy when they're running for office? But you don't hear the word child come out of their mouths. And we've set a goal that in the next presidential election, one of the debate questions will be child-centric. Like international child-centric? Yes. Like global. But child-centric in general, because mm-hmm. part of where the position that I take in the public eye here is that children shouldn't be defined by their borders. They should be defined by their age. And so if it's, if it's something we worry about for children that live in our borders, we should be worrying about it for children that live everywhere. Um, I, I guess just to, to maybe wrap up, I mean, do you see that uh, evolving in the future? I mean, it seems as if international development and, uh, you know, foreign aid is becoming like sort of seemingly like more of a, not a, necessarily a voting issue uh, for the public, but advocacy around international aid efforts. I'd say particularly around like the advent of the Gates Foundation and, and the Global Fund, you know, 10 or 15 years ago has become a little more sophisticated um, and uh, a little more pronounced, at least among like elite circles. So you're, at least to me, like you're starting to see more members of Congress uh, and more, um, you know, politicians in general uh, engaging on these issues to a degree that was probably unthinkable, you know, 20 years ago. Well, I guess I have a couple of responses. One, I would hope that part of the reason that's happening is because we're doing our jobs better. But, well, yeah, um, I think so. But, well, thank you. But also, you know, our, our children today live in a global world. You know, when, when our society was more geared towards a very localized community, you didn't even hear national issues being talked about at the dinner table. So we went from like small town issues to statewide issues to globe, you know, to national issues and now global issues. There are very few products we will purchase that don't have some international aspect to them. There are very few books we will read that don't. There are very few people who really still remain in the community in which they grew up in. Um, People travel, people interact, people intersect. And if we are concerned with peace, there is probably no better way to ensure conflict and to, I mean, excuse me, to deter conflict or to break down the barriers between us than to educate the world's children. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting, when you look at the per capita support for agencies providing aid, you find a much higher per capita support coming from countries where the that are currently developed, so we're not talking developing nations, but industrialized nations, from countries that were recipients at one time 
of aid for their children are the greatest supporters, like Korea. Yes, okay, South Korea, Korea is the is example, huge right? You know, supporter, right? Ban Ki Moon, you know, talks about receiving you know World Food Program aid as a child growing up in post-war Korea. You know, exactly, exactly. So, I, you know, when you think about what do we all want for the future of this planet, you know, we want it to be safe. We want our children to get a warm meal. We want them to sleep under a warm blanket. We want them to dream really big dreams. We want to be part of making that happen. So how does that happen? We need to ensure health for the whole world. We need to ensure that moms get the right care prenatally. We need to make sure that girls get educated, not just boys. We need to protect children as the greatest asset on the planet, not allow them to be trafficked, not allow them to be forced into soldiering, not allow them to be sold as a product. And if we do those things, our children will solve the problems of the world. Uh, well, Carol, thank you so much for your time. Uh, happy Passover. Thank you, Haksamech. Yeah, I, I got to put, put that brisket in the oven right now, but I, I appreciate your time. And this is, this is great. Thanks very much. Appreciate yours. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ms. Carol Stern, and we will see you next time. Remember to go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to subscribe on iTunes if you have not already done so. And if you love this podcast, and surely if you've listened to the end of this interview, that means you love this podcast, give us a review on iTunes. Tell the world that you like it. Uh, it actually really helps increase the visibility of the podcast to other people who might be searching for this content. So the more reviews we get, the better. To that end, please review the podcast. Much appreciated. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.